Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you joined us. We're about a month away from the November elections, and one of the voting blocks that really could decide the presidential race this year is, of course, the black vote. Both candidates have talked quite a bit about what a vote for them would mean for black Americans, and my next guest says both of them have publicly mischaracterized African-American political views and loyalties in recent months. That's nothing new, writes Theodore Johnson in the New York Times. Americans have viewed black voters as a monolith without really taking the time to understand the diversity of political thoughts and views that exist among black voters. He writes, quote, an enduring unity at the ballot box is not confirmation that black voters hold the same views on every contested issue, but rather that they hold the same view on the one most consequential issue racial equality. The existence of the black electoral monolith is evidence of a critical defect, not in black America, but in the American practice of democracy. That defect is the space our two-party system makes for racial intolerance and the appetite our electoral politics have for the exploitation of racial polarization, to which the electoral solidarity of black voters is an immune response. Theodore Johnson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Ted, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So let's start here. You write about how your own family is a really good illustration of the diversity of political beliefs that exist among black voters. Tell me what goes along, what goes on when your family gets together and talks about uh, politics. So remarkably, there's not a lot of contention. It's uh, it's actually a pretty fruitful discussion. We disagree on a number of policies, but uh, for the most part, we want the same thing out of this country, and that's just for the United States to be a fair playing field for, for black folks as it is for, for others. My father is a Republican, as I, I write in the piece, and my, my mother is a Democrat, and I sort of grew up straddling the line between the two and never committing to either party. Uh, I didn't vote until 2008, so I was 33 years old before I cast my first vote, whereas my parents are children of the Jim Crow South, and they were voted the second they were able to. Uh, The current iteration of the Republican Party is not to my dad's liking, and uh, I think my mother wishes the Democratic Party would pay a little bit more attention to the policy asks of black America. But generally speaking, we are a family that is progressive when it comes to questions of race, and conservative on fiscal matters, economy, and and, uh, maybe some of the societal issues. But uh, we lead with the belief that America should be equal and fair for everyone. And the method of getting there is where some of our politics begin to differ. Yeah. So I think that's a very familiar tableau for anyone, right? Right. Uh, But most people... I think when they think of African-Americans, they think of African-American families. Somehow they think it's different. Somehow they think that we all sit around and, and agree all the time about politics. And that is because of the Democratic voting loyalty to the Democratic Party. Right. So if you've ever sat in a barbershop on a Saturday morning or in a beauty salon, you know that black folks do not agree on everything. But if all you do is pay attention to what happens on Election Day, especially on presidential election days, and you see 90 percent of black voters making the same choice and supporting the Democrat, 
then you would think that maybe there's not a lot of political diversity within the black electorate, within black America. But the fact is that though our voting our voting uh, patterns are quite uniform in who we support, the politics that are underneath that partisan loyalty are quite diverse. So the reason, and the piece explains the reason why we see such loyalty to the Democratic Party, at least in the last five decades or so, is because most elections, especially presidential ones, tend to boil down to a question of which party is going to be better for civil rights protections. And over the last five decades, the question or the answer has clearly been the Democratic Party. If we look even just in the last decade, the Voting Rights Act has been gutted by the Supreme Court. Uh, we've, we're seeing voter ID laws, voter suppression laws being passed in a number of states that disproportionately impact black voters. Uh, we're seeing questions about affirmative action. We're seeing uh, law enforcement confrontations with police. And the Democratic uh, law enforcement confrontations with black communities and the Democratic Party usually takes the stance that the government should do more to protect the civil rights of black Americans. And Republicans usually say that the government should err on the side of government and, um, and allow people to sort of find their equality in the free market and based on, you know, personal responsibility and, and good behavior. And uh, black folks have a long history in this country of knowing that uh, managing your money well and, and talking properly are not enough to protect you from, from uh, the, the infringements of your civil rights. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk a little history here and sort of place this, this conversation in, in that context. Uh, talk about the period from Reconstruction through the early part of the 20th century and how black political views and loyalties developed uh, after slavery. Okay. Yeah, so once slavery ends, um, there's a period, and, and after Lincoln is assassinated, from about 1865 to 1870, we get three major constitutional amendments. The 13th, which abolishes slavery. The 14th, which makes formerly enslaved people now citizens of the United States. And the 15th, which says you can't take away citizens' right to vote just because of the, the race or the, the condition of their uh, previous servitude, et cetera. So it, it effectively gives the right to black men who were formerly enslaved to now participate in the voting process. Um, because the Republican Party at the time was the party championing abolition, as soon as black men got the right to vote, they were voting heavily for the Republican Party. At the time, over 90% of black people in the United States lived in slaveholding states or formerly slaveholding states. So that changed the state politics almost overnight once um, these formerly enslaved black folks were now allowed to vote. And again, they voted Republican. They voted black people into office who were Republicans and white segregationists uh, who wanted to return the United States back to a period uh, where white supremacy, frankly, was the, the rule of law instead of the, these new constitutional amendments, clustered themselves into the conservative party in some states or the Democratic Party in other states. So for about a decade, we have black men participating in the process, voting, representing their states, and both in Congress at the national level mm -hmm. and at the state level. And then in 1876, there is a contested presidential election and in order for the Republican to win the White House, Rutherford B. Hayes makes a deal with the Democratic Party that if you allow these contested electoral votes to go for me so I can take the White House, I'll remove federal troops from the South so that the states can now determine the future of their politics. And without the protection of federal troops in the South, all the new rights that black folks were enjoying, like the right to vote, to, uh, to participate in the economy, labor force, etc., were now stripped away. 
and uh, removed by terrorism, essentially, from white segregationists who wanted to use fear and violence to get people, black people to stop voting and to hurt their economic prospects and to sort of subjugate them back to, um, to the uh, political power of, and economic power of white Americans in those places. And this is what ushers in Jim Crow over the next few decades. And then what we get in 1900 is uh, black folks, a lot of black folks in the South just got sick of it and started to move north. And so the Great Migration begins in 1900, continues for the next 70 years, and by 1950, 1960, about 40% of black folks uh, in the United States now live outside of the South, outside of those formerly slaveholding states. And where they move to, New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Illinois, they begin changing the state politics in those places because they don't have Jim Crow there, and now black uh, people are able to vote. And then after 1920, even black women are now able to vote. So this causes a, a rift uh, between northern Democrats who need black voters to win elections and southern Democrats who are still segregationists and don't want black folks participating at all. And then Republicans, who heretofore had been more progressive on civil rights, now not wanting to be as bold as northern Democrats are. And it sort of shakes the parties up, uh, causes some realignment. But the constant among, uh, through all these years, from 1867 to about uh, 1940 or so, uh, 1930 or so, is that black voters voted as a block. And they voted against white segregationists, and they voted for the party that was willing to offer civil rights protections. And when no party was willing to do that, they were either excluded entirely from the process or they moved to places where they were permitted to participate in the politics in the uh, local economy and then began to, to use their voting power as a block in those places to change the conditions of society. Yeah, yeah. And it's really in the 1960s uh, with the burgeoning of the civil rights movement and the backlash to that movement that we see the parties really change places almost uh, 180 degrees that the Democratic Party becomes uh, the party of civil rights uh, and the party of the North and that uh, the Republican Party sort of digs in on this idea of uh, segregation and and isolation um, and and becomes the party of of the American South. That's right. That's right. So um, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes into office and offers the New Deal, by 1936, black Americans in the North, anyway, are voting for the New Deal because they want the, the economic relief mm -hmm. that comes along with it. And then by 1948, uh, Harry Truman is, uh, has now taken over as president because of FDR's death and is running in the 48 election to, to be a reelected president. And he signs the executive order desegregating the military in 1948, largely in part in order to win black voters in the North, because that's the only shot he has at winning the election. And his strategy proves true, and uh, black voters in the North support him as a result of that desegregation order, and he wins the election. This kicks off a 20-year period of Democrats um, really courting black voters in the North especially, looking to expand uh, the number of black voters who can participate by removing Jim Crow restrictions in the South, and Republicans not putting up too much of a fight as Democrats begin contesting for, for black voters. So in 48, we get the desegregation order for the military and for the federal workforce. 1954, the Supreme Court passes or um, 
holds that uh, Brown v. Board is, you know, essentially desegregating the school system, which has ripple effects. And I think it's 57, there's a Civil Rights Act. And then in 1960, um, Nixon and JFK are competing for the presidency, and Nixon actually gets one-third of the black vote. Uh, this is the last time a pre- uh, Republican has gotten more than 15% mm-hmm. of the black vote. And then we know what happens in 64, there's a Civil Rights Act that the Republican nominee, Goldwater, is against. Lyndon Johnson, the president, is for, and black voters support him, Johnson, the Democrat, at 96% to Goldwater's 4%. And it's been about that lopsided ever since 64. So there were times where the Republicans, Eisenhower and and even Nixon, uh, could have made more... Uh, could have made stronger appeals to black voters by matching the Democrats on their racially progressive policies, which is basically signing anti-lynching bills, getting rid of poll taxes, stopping Jim Crow uh, laws in the South from terrorizing and preventing black people from participating in society. But instead, they watched white Democrats in the South become disaffected with their party because northern Democrats were now appealing to black voters. And now there's a homeless block of voters, white racists in the South, and Republicans begin to expand their national footprint by courting those voters instead of expanding on their civil rights platform by more aggressively courting black voters. And they and that leads to Nixon's Southern strategy and now the racialization of the parties we see today where the Again, over 90 percent of black voters vote for the Democrat in congressional and presidential elections, and the vast majority of Republicans are white people, uh, to the point where 95 percent of Republicans in Congress are white, and only two are black, and one of them is retiring this this fall. So uh, the, the, the parties are now segregated by race in, uh, as a result of the, an unwillingness of one party to uh, match the civil rights protections, uh, guarantees of the other. Yeah. I'm talking with Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, about the role that black voters play uh, in American politics and the way that American politics views black voters, this monolith that gets assigned to African-Americans in terms of their political views. Of course, that's not accurate. Uh, Black people have as diverse political views as any other demographic, but they do vote overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party. Uh, Ted, I want to talk about the power that uh, this dynamic assigns, essentially, to black voters. We hear both parties talking about black voters, talking about their popularity or their uh, their desired popularity uh, with with black voters. It does seem as though there is an effort to court them. But as you point out, uh, in the end, uh, an overwhelming majority of black voters uh, stay with the with the Democratic Party. Does that make black voters as powerful as they could be in American politics? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, and I think most political scientists don't really agree on the answer. I think there's when you've got a a group of people who make up about thirteen, twelve to thirteen percent of a country of three hundred fifty million participating in elections, there's no doubt that there is electoral power in their participation. The question is, do do black voters have more power by clustering in one party and making demands of that party, or would they have more power if they were spread between the two and they were the swing block, essentially, and forced both parties to make appeals and and then receive uh, policy gains because you become the the block that puts people into power? 
And, you know, we, we've seen a little bit of both over the course of history, mostly the former, where we're clustered in one party. And there's uh, undoubtedly that has led to more civil rights gains for black people. Black people's support of the Democratic Party uh, from 1948 forward and really from 1964 forward led to all of the legislation that we hold sacred today, Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing Act. Um, and it's, I don't know if those acts come about if, uh, if black voters had not used their electoral power as a block, supporting and leading to Democratic part, the Democratic Party winning the presidency and mayoral races and, and gubernatorial races. But there, it's a real question on, on whether we get more for our participation in one party or if we would get more if, we were, uh, if both parties were fighting for our right to vote. And I, I tend to think that the latter would be true. And that's because just before 19, um, the, the sweep of victories from 1948 to 1968, again, Eisenhower and Nixon didn't ignore the black vote completely. And there were elections, I think uh, Eisenhower in 56, for example, who wins 40 percent of the black vote. Nixon in 60 wins 33 percent of the black vote. And that led to, um, you know, uh, again, the, these legislative gains. The problem is, instead of both parties competing for this block that undoubtedly has electoral power, we're the second largest voting bloc in terms of participation in the United States, uh, even as Hispanics are, are growing. Um, Republicans, at least certainly at the state level, have been leaning on making it more difficult to participate in elections with voter ID laws, closing polling stations, closing early registration windows. In North Carolina, the laws they passed were so bad that a federal court said they had targeted black voters with almost surgical precision in order to keep them away from the polls. So instead of the power of black folks uh, creating a competition between the two parties for their vote, it turned one party to be totally reliant on black voters and the other party to find ways to reduce black voters' participation in, the election, in elections at all instead of, instead of making those appeals. Um, so as a result, we have increased national power, I think, because one of the major parties in our two-party system cannot win elections without us. But it also means that the other party um, is not really making any attempt to, to win us over. And when they win power, we are often left in the cold and our, and our rights, some of our civil rights protections get rolled back as a result. Mm. And, and there are some real uh, dynamics around voting itself that have an effect on all of this, this modern day voter suppression that targets black voters uh, from the Republican Party. I mean, it, it seems as though the strategy for some Republicans is to make sure African-Americans don't vote uh, and that that's uh, their path to victory. And in fact, here in the state of Michigan in 2016, Donald Trump won the state uh, because 20,000 voters in the city of Detroit, which is 85 percent black, did not show up uh, at the polls the way they did in in 2012, uh, that complicates this this whole narrative about uh, which party uh, black voters have their allegiance to. That's right, right. You know, since the founding of the country, who gets to vote has been a motivating question for those with political and economic power. It was really restricted when the nation was founded, and the story of the United States is that slow expansion of who gets to participate in society and participate as equals. So um, the, the party's attempts to shape the electorate, both parties gerrymander, 
Um, you know, both parties, either the Democrats want to increase participation among black and brown communities because they know they hold advantages there. Republicans want to restrict the electorate um, to, to sort of shape it to their advantage. And there's just a number of problems with this. One is laws that are passed, like voter ID, is, is a lot of Republicans say, what's the big deal about having to show your ID? It's not just that. It's which ID is acceptable. Mm-hmm. In the state of Texas, a gun license is acceptable. But a university ID issued by the, the government of Texas, the University of Texas system, is not acceptable. So 80% of gun licenses are issued to white Texans. Something like 66% of, racial, of um, university IDs are issued to black and brown students. So by not accepting university IDs but accepting gun licenses, you're shaping the electorate uh, to be more white, whether you intended to or not. But you're certainly intending to bake in a partisan advantage there. So that's, that's a problem. Um, and the, the other things are things like voter purges, where if the name on your ID doesn't match the name on the voter registration roll, you can't vote or you have to submit a provisional ballot. In many cases, if you have, uh, like in Georgia, Wisconsin, if you have an apostrophe in your name, uh, sometimes the voter registration rolls will have that as an underscore or a space. Mm-hmm. And because it now is not an exact match, Letitia, with an apostrophe in her name, is not allowed to cast a, val- a ballot. She has to cast a provisional one and then make an, a separate trip to a, a, the, uh, a government agency a couple days or a week or so later to make sure her vote was counted by presenting acceptable ID. Mm-hmm. So these are ways, you know, and if, but, you know, white names don't come across the same set of issues when it comes to apostrophes and hyphens, et cetera, as, as black and brown names do. This is a problem. Now, maybe it's just on the margins, but as you pointed out, in Michigan, it, between Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, those states decided to elect the election in 2016, and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were separated by 77,000 votes across those three states. Mm-hmm. And, it, and in Michigan and Wisconsin, black voter turnout was down 12% yeah. in 2016 uh, from 2012. Voter, voter ID laws, voter suppression laws, and then sort of the type of candidates that were running had a, had a role in why Donald Trump was able to win those states. Yeah. Okay. Ted Johnson, senior fellow at the Brennan Center, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a quick break on Detroit Today, and we'll be back with more. Stay with us. Mm-hmm.